Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the July 22nd, 2023 uh, QPSC. Roll call, please, Madam Clerk. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Steen. Here. Trustee Sun. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, this is the part where we often offer up any uh, public comment, if there is any. I have not received any. Yes, ma'am. So uh, we'll all, always open up the meeting uh, with the purpose of the QPSC. And this is from our, from our uh, charter. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies and monitoring of organizational quality, uh, assurance of performance improvement and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with the continuing practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical ops and patient care. So with that, and with no public comment, we'll go into uh, the opening. Uh, the article uh, uh, that I selected, I'll introduce in a second. I just want to give a little context for why this article that we chose. Um, about uh, a few weeks ago, I heard a story about one of my colleagues uh, and my friends, Dr. Alex Diaz, who's one of our dedicated primary care physicians and also our internal medicine program director. Um, Dr. Diaz uh, uh, cares for a whole array of primary care patients. This one particular patient is a victim of, of, of gun violence and has had all kinds of digestive issues. And, and Dr. Diaz wanted to get him Ensure, which is a nutritional supplement, which we can, we can, many of us can buy at the grocery store. This patient couldn't afford it. And the story uh, about Dr. Diaz is he literally spent 10 hours of emails phone calls and et cetera, to try to get this uh, patient their, their insurer. And uh, you know, that made me think of a couple of things. One is uh, Dr. Diaz's dedication to our patient population, but also sort of in this measure, in, in this environment that we're engaging on uh, measuring physician productivity, it made me wonder about all these historically unaccounted for activities that many of our providers do. And as I was thinking about this, this article uh, from the New York Times came across my feed. Uh, and uh, as you guys see, the, the, the article is titled, Emailing Your Doctor May Carry a Fee, uh, sort of an in, in, interesting article. I'll give a few of my kind of interesting quotes and then I'll open it up to the trustees for great comment that they always give. Uh, first, uh, uh, from the article, electronic health communications have exploded in recent years. In turn, a growing number of healthcare organizations have begun charging fees for some responses to more time-intensive patient queries. Data from EPIC showed that the rate of patient emails to providers had increased by more than 50% in the last three years. Um, as a side note, uh, UCSF started its email billing program in November of 2021. And uh, as part of their program, they've been giving productivity points for doctor's correspondence, which I, I don't even know how they're measuring and all that kind of stuff. So. I guess my question to trustees, have any of you had this experience with an email uh, email communication with your doctors and in, in uh, engaging the charge? I have not. I have not, but okay. I, I tell you, I remember back in 2002 or so, seeing a presentation by Relay Health, which was subsequently sold, I think, to Optum, yeah. uh, that they had this secure platform for e-visits with yeah. doctors and everything. And I thought it was like the dumbest idea I ever heard. Yeah. And now look how it's proliferated. I think the problem with this is 
like so many medical services, it doesn't fit very well in this fee-for-service pay-as-you-go environment. Whereas, you know, in a capitated environment, you're paying a physician to manage a panel. Uh, and the question is, can I manage the panel more efficiently, you know, with this tool? Yeah. I think what's happened, though, is for the, the Kaisers of the world and, and uh, other groups like that, it's a way to make the panels bigger for the physicians. Yeah. And I think that that's a problem because I've often thought, as I watched, you know, somebody like you, like, walk into a room, you're finishing this on the pager, and now yeah. this person, how can somebody change their frame of reference so rapidly and, you know, deal with something that's as, as dangerous as driving a, a truck with no guardrail in the way you know, treating a person's life, and you have to jump that truck. So I think that's the real problem with it. I don't think this paying for it model is a problem. I mean, it's a service, and it's reasonable to charge people for it. Yeah. It just seems kind of a different Yeah, yeah I, I agree. And, uh, you know, I think our, our patients are already feeling nickel and dimed on a lot, a lot of different things. And I think the, the article comments on that. Trustees Esteen or Banerjee, any comments on this article? Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, nickel and dime is a great way to say it. Yeah. You know, except that it's real money. And when inflation in 2022 is 8%, that nickel is changing into a quarter pretty yeah. rapidly. And people's mm -hmm. uh, incomes are not necessarily keeping pace. And even if they do, you know, the, the answer overall is we need national health care and, and all these fees gets in the way yeah. you know if you call the doctor's office are you going to get charged for that as well right I mean, if you call 911 are you going to get charged for that like at what the, point what's the it, slippery slope yeah it's a slippery slope at what point are you calling for help and just getting served mm. um and yeah i think it is important to also compare what happens when you are uh within an hmo system uh ppo system the public health system you know and and where does the money go is this about profit margin or is this about actually putting the money back into delivery of care yeah. is it also about expanding provider access like if a provider is now billing for this extra service are they getting more time to do that work yeah because you still got 24 hours in a day you got to sleep at some point you're only going to work 8 to 12 hours maybe yeah. 16 hours sometimes you know it, it's just what are we doing here yeah you remember we had that funny article a couple a month, months ago about uh, the modeling for how much time it took for a primary care. And one of the models, it was something like 25 hours right. in a day and in a team-based approach, 10 hours per day. Really, really complex questions. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah. When I read this thing, emailing your doctor may carry a fee, I was like, what is Benjamin Ryan, the writer, trying to say? Is he talking about the system? Is he talking about the patient-centered care? Is he talking doctor's about time. the provider's doctor's time. provider's time or what it is? But ultimately, there was not very much of like the patient-centeredness in it. And I feel like every time one has had to, at least I think about like whenever I had to interface, most times like I think people are not wanting to just chat with the doctor for the fun of it. They, I've had to, the few, whenever I've had to do it is because um, the coding is wrong and I got billed for something that I shouldn't have got billed for or some information was incomplete and I couldn't understand it. Can you tell me one more thing about the medication or something? So part of it was like, and those of us who know the system have been in the system when we are patients ourselves, take our families through it. It's just uh, infuriating to navigate through this system as a patient 
And specifically when I think about our patient population, like many of them are hopefully using the portal, but probably not bugging their doctors as much. So sometimes I wonder that some of the other things, Epic related or dealing with the insurance and all, how that kind of like shows up into some of our impatience with the patients because it's like, oh my God, like now they are writing to us and we have to do this extra paperwork because some of the burnout might be about other parts of the system that are hard on us, on the providers, on everybody. But then like, who do we take it out on sometimes? So I just felt like, yep, this, are, this it's so uh, bonkers the way the, you know, things are set up over here that your insurance uh, denies so many things. We don't have universal health care. We don't have all of these things. And then uh, we have so many high acuity patients and we like to do telehealth. And, but the downside of it is then what, what are some of the other things that might not be seen uh, through that. So always very complex, all of that. And always to like, to see the impact on providers, on staff, on fiscal and, and, and patients. patients. Yeah, I agree. A, a, a complex subject and it's uh, nonetheless, this, this, this mechanism for communication isn't going away. I, I know I use it very frequently. I know many of my patients have my personal cell phone mm -hmm. and, and, and I know I'm not unique in that uh, uh, for, for the dedicated doctors here. Yeah, and, and dedicated doctors. Yeah, yeah. The personal cell phone is yeah. really, it's its remarkable sometimes. My, when my kids were really young, our pediatrician gave me his personal cell phone. Yeah. And I maybe called him once. Yeah. It was like something happening. But it really just is the level of dedication. It's uh, amazing. To provide good patient care. Yeah. And, and also, like, This is it's complicated to provide quality care all the time, have quality of life, and we have such disparities yeah. because we know that the care burden is not the same for every provider and the receipt of care is not the same for every patient. Yeah. And ultimately we're trying to fix that. Thread that whatever needle. Exactly. Yeah. So as always, I appreciate trustee conversation on this. Just again, food for thought as we as we contemplate these things as we go on. Um, with that, I'll, I'll close item A and we'll go to item B. Item B only has two items, B1 and B2. Um, uh, may I entertain a motion to approve B1? Because I have a lot of questions about B2, if that's okay. I move. We approve the minutes of the July May, um, up to, uh, July yes, ma'am. Thank you. We have a second from Trustee Esteem. Roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Bo I'm sorry, Trustee Esteem. Aye. Trustee Sign. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. I'll, I'll open up discussion on B2. If okay, I'll start out. There, there's some things in there which I, I'm, I guess I wasn't used to seeing. I think Trustee Banerjee made comment last time about the medication error reduction plan, which was included in the consent agenda. And uh, I didn't know this is uh, uh, this something that we need to uh, put in the consent agenda. We thought, uh, didn't we have a discussion that this felt more uh, apropos for actually a presentation? Yeah, we didn't know what we were approving yes. by, by uh, 
having it in the consent. Wasn't that last month? Yes. So it, it reappeared back. So I'll, this is a different version. Yeah, I, yes. I think it's a more updated version. Yes. So updated quarterly. Yeah, but I guess my comment is: this the right place for it within the policies and procedures? Because it looks like a report. And, and, and this is the discussion we contemplated last time, because we hadn't previously before Trustee Vanerjee, my record is helped me with my recollection. We haven't done that before. So uh, uh, is a med medication error reduction plan something that belongs in policies and procedures approval? Because it's sort of like a performance. It's like a performance. Right, it's a report. Yeah, right. it's a report. Right. So that was one question. The next question I had was, that there were four drug monographs in here, one for pegpilograstum, trastuzumab, zoledrenic acid, and fosoprepient, which are these, are, these are very complex medicines used for chemotherapy. I don't recall that we were at this level, we approved individual drugs previously. I just don't have that recollection. Is that part of our practice to approve individual drugs? Uh, and I guess that would go to question. pharmacy. So I, I think it's, Maybe Nelda can weigh in on this. I think what happens is uh, the PNT action items go to the CPC committee and yeah. from CPC they come here. Okay. So pharmacy and therapeutics is approving them. Yeah. I don't recall if they typically come here as well. Uh, and that was my recollection yeah. because okay. it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about setting a tone. Are we going to be in position of approving every new medicine formulary that comes okay. to us? We we can ask unless no well, one Chair knows. Chair Yes, sir. We don't. We've never done. That. Yeah, that's what I mean. We've never done this before. Yeah, that's what's piqued my interest. I can look at our policy, the quality committee charter, but I doubt it's going to say that we're going to approve something. We we've okay. delegate. Actually, not we. Help me out, Council. Hasn't MEC delegated authority to PNT on on these kind of decisions? Uh, 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 pharmacy and therapeutics. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, 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 the packet goes to MEC no, before it comes here. I'm sorry. So the packet goes to MEC before it comes here. So okay. MEC is seeing that approving it. I see. So those are, I just didn't I like it. seeing drug monographs. I just don't have any recollection okay. of seeing them. We'll look at the charter. Yes, sir. And get back to the trustee. So we're going to pull this out again. Nilda has something to say? Yes. Nilda, sorry. Do you have anything no. to say? I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't trying to raise my hand for a comment. No, I can't hear you. Nelda, a volume. Oh, Hold on one second. Let's try again. One more time, Nelda. How's that? No, okay. ma'am. Okay. I think it might be in this room. We, you, you were very quiet at first. Okay, try us again. One time again, Ms. Perez. Ah, uh, Well, we can take it back. That's all uh, Trustee Banerjee has some more questions on the uh, on B two, right? Yes. So um, on page fifty one, and Nilda, I don't know if we can hear you I, or not. But oh, uh, yes, no, we can yes, hear you. Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, so um, medical error. Uh, so PNT does uh, does report uh, does do their due diligence on formulary. They then um, sometimes will come to uh, CPC to review the list and see if there's any input from the clinical practice committee. 
and then it goes on to MEC. And then um, I assume that you're informed by the packet that you receive. But the question was like on the individual drugs, we, uh, I, I'm just, I'm concerned about setting a precedent that we have, that this committee is charged with approving individual drugs. No, no, you would not be. You have oversight, you've delegated to MEC. There's a PEP does the discussion and the review and MEC is informed. So if MEC has any questions, of course, as the prescribing providers in MEC, you know, they would then raise those questions and maybe send something back to P&T if they did not agree. But and that makes sense, but they're just not, they're in the consent package. Right, so they should be pulled out in the future. So Thank you. just for clarity, so, if they stay with MEC, then we will not see it like this in our consideration. It won't show up in this way anymore. I think that is correct. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. That seems then, so the Merck plan is updated quarterly. So do you want it presented quarterly or just? Uh, I just don't, I don't know if that's the proper venue for it. I mean, it, it's, I think it's, it relates to quality. I think it's, a, it's, it's good for us to hear. Do we have to approve it quarterly? Are we compelled to approve it? No, in the discussion section. It's a plan. Yeah. Okay. So I think we can have a discussion uh, uh, as far as with you, Dr. Mo, about when that rotates through here. Okay. I guess my, uh, I was just sort of thinking about, man, uh, I think at last count we have like over 7,000 policies in this organization. I'm just trying to cut it down what we have to see uh, because sometimes we're approving things, you know, none of us know these drugs. And, and, and trusting Energy, you got something. Yeah. Nilda, I was following up on the medication reconciliation compliance thing. And, you know, last time you had said that a, the EPIC, EPIC had been set for uh, reconciliation within 24 hours because that's best practice. And Dr. Joshi and uh, the uh, other physician leader had suggested that we keep that, though that would be hard to maintain. And because that's not a reconciliation within 24 hours is not a joint commission requirement that you were pulling back on it. So can you tell me what is the joint commission requirement in terms of reconciliation? And is there, are there differences whereas reconciliation in ambulatory versus reconciliation in acute care setting or whether it is in, you know, like transfers? What, what? In, it, mm -hmm. in its simplest form, med reconciliation has to occur with every transition in care and at the end of the encounter. So whether a patient is discharged or whether, so, or a patient leaves, like even if they're just here for an outpatient encounter. Um, so that's the basically every transition in care and prior to discharge or the end of their encounter. So, I mean, as a physician and I, I, I can, um, so if I'm, you know, stepping into something that, you know, there are so many policies that you have over here, but wouldn't you think that given 24 hours of drug re reconciliation of what is this patient taking so far? Like, will there be a drug drug re, uh, you know, interaction? Will there be a drug diet interaction? Will there be stuff that will happen if someone has come in? It isn't, uh, isn't like that. Uh, sometimes the joint commission is a floor, not the not something, and spe especially for our patients who have incredibly acute comorbidities and things like if you do if you don't have something like that it is like when i get from to it i mean i, I don't understand is there a time 
So there is, you know, that 24 hours, um, it's not the requirement. There is no time frequency. And so it's funny, I just recently, we're coming to QSC at the next QSC meeting. I've been meeting with pharmacy regularly these last two weeks. Um, so we haven't, we're going to be doing a new presentation on what the standards are and what we are looking at the data and how to improve, how to really do quality insurance performance improvement. In some case, patients' cases, 24 hours is too long. That, that's beyond the length of that encounter, which is why the Joint Commission for Patient Safety Reasons says it's got to be with transitions in care or at the end of the encounter. So if you're a patient who comes in for, let's say, an outpatient procedure, you have your prior to admission list or pre-op list of medications, something's happening, and then maybe you have a complication. Now you're going to be admitted. Um, so now that patient's going to be here, hopefully not for very long, but let's say that patient's going to be here for the management of that complication. So there's needs to be, there would need to be a reconciliation from where they were in the outpatient OR setting and then where they are on the inpatient, and that would need to be done before that patient leaves. Um, if a patient is here just for an in-and-out procedure, then that should be completed. Again, if there's any changes to their medication as a result of the intervention that was done for them, let's say they go to the cath lab and they're going you know, home that night, there might be something that we need them to hold a med, we might need them to change a med, something temporarily, but just for the two days. We need to do that med reconciliation before they go home because if they continue with what they had prior to coming, then there's going to be problems. So it really is around transitions in care and prior to you know, the end of that encounter. And that's really, I don't really know where the 24 hours came from. We were discussing it that that might have been a recommendation by the EPIC team at the start um, of when we first went into our EPIC journey. But we're realizing now that we need to, that might have been a place to start, but it's not where we end. So we're looking at making uh, some alterations and change to either workflows or either reporting of the data to see where we have those opportunities for improvement. Okay. Thank you for your comments, uh, Ms. Perez. So the, the great part about Epic is it, it builds hard stops into this, uh, and, I, and I'm, I'll be gracious to the hard stops on this, but they're hard stops nonetheless. So for example, when we're discharging someone from our endoscopy unit just for procedure, we cannot discharge, I cannot hit the discharge button unless meds have been reconciled. Right. So yes. as, as, as Ms. Perez just said, at any exchange of event, even in my clinic, I can't oversign the patient and I can put orders in, but I can't actually sign off the patient unless med rec has happened. So, I, so I'm sort of confused also on the 24 hours because our system sort of makes us do it right away. Right away. Okay, good, good. So I thought yeah. tops, like if yeah. somebody came in from somewhere, like of course, it, and they have come in from ED to inpatient and the reconciliation but that would take two three days to happen yeah if you're saying that even that's in its ideal that's how it should happen i'm sure there's there's some loopholes you can override on things but um, the system is designed to reconcile it just as you said at every transition event happens on your floors too got it now that makes so much it's so routine that i can't i don't understand the point yeah Yeah. i mean it's burden. Dr. Tornabene, I think, wants to weigh in, Trustee Bouquet. Yes. Yeah, hi. Sorry, I'm a disembodied voice. My my um, video, my internet is not that great where I am here on the East Coast All right good. now. Um, uh, I just also wanted to, to comment around, well, um, you know, Dr. Bouquet is exactly right in that there are kind of these forced 
times to do medication reconciliation within our EPIC workflows. One of the things that is clear is that sometimes the quality of those reconciliations might not be um, uh, exactly correct because we that, that doing a highly rigorous medication reconciliation might involve calling a commercial pharmacy, finding out if a patient is picking up their medications, finding out if it's been, you know, yesterday versus three months ago, et cetera, where, where the medications have been picked up. And as Nilda noted that um, one of the things we're working with Roe Lofton on, as well as Diana Tamron, is really looking at the inpatient side at how best we support the clinical teams in, in terms of doing quality um, medication reconciliation and maybe looking at even having um, our, our pharmacy team, something like a farm tech for high-risk patients, um, perhaps do some of that med rec at admission because once you get it right at admission through these um, collateral uh, bits of information, then it is going to be much more correct at, at discharge, which is such a high risk um, time in a patient's life. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that because sometimes the patient themselves don't know what they are getting, yeah. the caregiver might not know. So to get it right might take a little bit, few more attempts. Yeah, so sort of two questions. Is med rec happening? Yes. What's the fidelity of that med rec yes. is sort of a different, a, a different but related issue. Council, you had a comment, sir. Oh, no, just that. Well, thank you. So given that discussion, may I entertain a motion to approve item B2 uh, withdrawing the four drugs and the medication uh, uh, reconciliation uh, report? I'll move that we uh, approve B2. And we have a second from Trustee Esteem. Yes. Council, I mean, uh, 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 Madam Clerk. Yeah, I, I just want to make sure I'm really clear on which items are being removed. There, there are four drugs, and they they all say drug monograph on them. Okay. Madam Clerk. And then there is um, uh, the medication error reduction plan, the MERT, AH okay. MERT Q1 2023 summary review. Okay, perfect. Thank you for clarifying. I just want to make sure I get it right. Okay. Um, all right. Trustee Banerjee. Hi. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Esteem. Aye. Trustee Sign. Aye. The motion passes. All right, thank you everybody. Sorry for slowing us down during, during consent. We'll move to item C now. This is where we hear from our med staff leaders. And I see Dr. I see Dr. Lee. She has the big face on the screen right now. And there's <laughs> now there's Dr. Joshi. Okay. And then there's Dr. Afdali. Okay, they all show up. Um, good evening, Dr. Lee. Good evening, Board of Trustees. Thank you for uh, being here tonight. Um, I'm here to present the AHS report to the Board of Trustees, and I'm going to start with community. Um, at MEC this month, we had a very important discussion where our trauma program director spoke regarding his concerns around the availability of interventional radiology and the lack of those services, its effect on the care of our trauma patients and the accreditation of our trauma program come 2024. There was a very extensive discussion between MEC members and AHS executive officers regarding the exhaustive efforts in the last couple of years 
to uh, staff the service as well as in obtaining coverage. Um, for quality, uh, our ethics committee, which consists of a bioethicist and two physicians did a wonderful presentation. They uh, talked about how their availability for clinical consults is 24 seven and on our call schedule. Um, they do consults around patients who are incapacitated, unrepresented, or in crisis. Um, they also participate in policy making as well as regulatory issues when it comes to crisis standard of care, novel therapy allocations, and identification of the unknown patient, as well as clinical decision making for incapacitated patients. For staff and patient experience, uh, our search committee, department chair search committees are continuing their work. Emergency medicine, the identified candidate is still awaiting a contract. Um, for imaging and radiology, we identified a candidate who declined the offer and we are working with the recruiting agency to identify more candidates. Um, in orthopedic surgery, the MEC committee has identified a candidate and they are awaiting more information. And for the Department of Psychiatry, a uh, committee has formed and we are strategizing with AHS Human Resources on recruitment methods. In terms of uh, patient-centeredness, I uh, just wanted to note that there was a slight decline in all metrics uh, among Highland and San Leandro hospitals. Uh, hospital doctor communications currently um, at 80.6% and San Leandro is at 78.3%. The likelihood of recommendation from the HCAPS rating is 75% for Highland and 83.1% for San Leandro Hospital. In department reports under sustainability, the emergency department gave a very extensive report. Um, they talked about their strengths, that their residency program is one of the top ten ranked nationally. Um, and that the residency program participates, I'm sorry, their program overall, their faculty program participates in the underrepresented in medicine program that we um, have in combination with AHMG. Um, we, they also spoke about their creation of the new division of addiction medicine. Dr. Wills also spoke about the uh, constant um, concerns around boarding and overcrowding in the emergency room and how uh, some of the efforts and opportunities are starting to uh, begin or starting to be worked on, which include um, case management, as well as expansion of specialty services to community emergency departments. And that is the conclusion of my report and I am open for questions. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Lee? Dr. Lee, um, you know, I, I was also in, in that room uh, hearing about the concerns of our trauma certification and trauma program. That's my first comment, and I'd look for your counsel on that. And the second, just to reiterate for our trustees, it sounds like that we have five uh, uh, departments which do not have permanent leadership in place. I think that's the number. Ortho, ED, radiology, OB, and psych. Does that sound correct? Oh, yes, OB, we have not started um, a search committee for the obstetrics department just yet, but we have emergency medicine, imaging radiology, orthopedic surgery, psychiatry, um, and OB is coming up. Do you have any comments on, on why almost half of our clinical departments don't have permanent leadership in place? 
you know, I, I think it's difficult to say. I would, you know, from understanding the historical perspective from of these different departments, you know, emergency medicine, the chair, previous chair retired. He was there for 20, over 20 years. Um, I would say that it, it's, it's difficult to work at AHS. And I, I think, um, you know, COVID being a part of uh, the last few years has really strained uh, first-line healthcare workers, um, medical infrastructure, and I think leading at this time is is very difficult, and it's um, hard to come across candidates, especially in a market where healthcare providers are highly desired by all institutions at this time. It's hard to attract uh, candidates that would be would be willing to take on such a big job. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Um, trustees, any other? Okay. Uh, Dr. Fazali, good evening. Hi, good evening all. Uh, the San Leandro Leadership uh, Committee will be meeting in less than a week from today on the, on the 1st of August. Uh, there are a number of items that I'm uh, looking forward to, so I'll, I'll leave my report uh, relatively short tonight. Uh, the focus item will be relating to OR and processes surrounding surgical services. Uh, again, uh, we're seeing a lot of movement here, a lot of positive welcome movement, uh, which has been a hope for the hospital since the outset of the leadership committee back in 2019. Uh, we'll be hearing about the block schedule, uh, OR lighting and shielding updates, uh, as well as the sterile processing department uh, updates that ortho holds uh, near and dear. Um, the second item that we will be discussing is outpatient specialty referrals. It's a topic that we have uh, mentioned uh, a lot uh, during the board meetings as well as the Q, uh, QSPC, uh, but there are a number of critical pathways that are in place and work well, ortho being one of those. Uh, and we have a renewed effort to look at a sustainable process uh, for referral from ED and inpatient uh, without having to create a unique uh, sort of algorithm for each one of these specialties. And I want to acknowledge Dr. Portia Mack's uh, uh, efforts in getting this rolling. Uh, so more to come on that. Uh, the ED had its uh, Intala survey at the tail end of the Highland survey. Uh, the results uh, and reports are that on pending. I'm sure we will all hear about it. Uh, but the last item I wanted to mention is that the leadership committee, we hope to present SLH-specific quality metrics, including uh, something that's a little bit new we haven't done before, which is the uh, patient experience. And I'd remind the committee that the uh, SLH leads the length of stay for admitted patients, as well as pretty low readmission rates, which is great. Uh, during our May meeting, uh, we heard uh, metrics relating to better than expected mortality in the ICU as well. And the hope is that the, that, uh, the broader SLH-specific metrics will continue to bring to light uh, uh, both these achievements as well as opportunities and keep us aligned with AHS-wide um, efforts. Um, and that brings my report to an end. Uh, open to questions. Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Afzali. Trustees, any questions for Dr. Afzali? No. Looking forward to those uh, site-specific uh, as, as our true-not metrics go deeper um, by different SPUs and locations and settings. 
Same Andrews had some nice performance. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, Dr. Sally. Good evening, Dr. Joshi. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Thank you for having me today to represent Alameda Hospital MEC. Um, I want to highlight under community that we were privileged to host a tour with one of the Alameda Hospital District Board members, one of the district board directors. Um, and he walked through the facility with, and was able to see the hospital. Also on a community, I wanna highlight that we have been um, working with the AHS MEC to see where there are opportunities to um, integrate while still preserving an independent medical staff. So for example, with an open session of both MECs, we have administrative reports, for example, from the CMO, the CMIO, and it, um, and I am actually a member of HSMEC, so I hear both reports. And it's interesting to see that there's often overlap, redundancy. And so we are looking at what could integrating in a way that is intelligent and efficient do in terms of improving communication and furthering the critical goal of looking at HS as a system while preserving Alameda Hospital as an independent medical staff. So we are definitely on the early side of what this could look like, but we've had some really great dialogue from all members of, of both med staff MECs. Um, under the sustainability, I wanna highlight that we continue to have conversation about opportunities to explore how we are utilizing the operating room at Alameda Hospital. Um, we have a perioperative services work group that Dr. Laura Lang heads up with Dr. Victorino and Teresa Cooper. Uh, we also have talked about the needs of our surgical specialties and what they would need from Alameda Hospital, what they currently have at Alameda Hospital. Um, in addition to that, we are looking forward to um, future meetings about contingency planning of the infrastructure and operational needs specifically related to the HVAC. And um, lastly, we have our next joint planning committee meeting set for July 31st. Um, and while I say lastly, I just wanna highlight that we just heard from the San Leander Leadership Committee meeting, um, you know, bullet points regarding the operating room. And I just gave you information regarding the operating room. And so this is just one of many examples where looking at the hospitals cohesively will allow the medical staff to um, think about OR in this particular example in a way that meets our patient needs across the system. And that's just one of many ways I think that if we can integrate in ways that are smart while preserving the independent medical groups, we move forward, improve the quality of our patient care that's being delivered, be more efficient, um, meet metrics as we identify them. And that's the extent of my report and happy to answer any questions. Thank you for the report, Dr. Joshi. Trustees? I, ha I have one question and I could- No, please. So um, uh, first of all, thank you for the kind of coordination and collaboration you have between San Leandro and Alameda. I know that there's, a, there's really a great uh, resonance there in terms of uh, coordination and, and with, with um, Highland as well. Uh, I wanted to know that I've been, I have to give some gratitude to Satira because this uh, came up during a conversation with her, but when we have the medical staff report, I noticed that we don't have post-acute medical staff or behavioral health uh, medical staff also presenting over there. And I was wondering, is it possible for uh, 
uh, Dr. Lee, it was wonderful actually to hear the ambulatory physician speak to us last time from the uh, from uh, primary care. So is it because all of it is inpatient, uh, some of that, would it be possible where, as you are presenting for, for you to also maybe, I don't know, uh, give us the post-acute from the Alameda side uh, and then for, uh, I don't know, John George would be in the, uh, Dr. Lee, Dr. Sali, same, same um, license somewhere over there. I don't know how, would that be something that is possible to do? We can certainly explore that and figure out the most appropriate format to present that information because you know, this is a public forum. And as Dr. Biquette says, we have a voice and we wanna make sure that we are inclusive and, and sharing the spotlight. So we can certainly explore what that looks like. Well, the spotlight and also the information. I feel like there's so much that comes up sometimes that gives us the opportunity to advocate on behalf of your facilities. You know, you do the work, but then there's a, a bit of the public spotlight that comes here that gives us a chance to really be your champion yeah. with the Board of Supervisors and with the executive leadership team in a different way. We want to be your champion. If we can help facilitate that in any way, but uh, um, thank you, Sadira, for uh, sharing that with me too. I was like, hey, where do we actually get some of the behavioral health? And I wish we had remembered that when Dr. Siddharth was here, but uh, you know, in, in both their physicians and their voice uh, and the post-acute physician's voice also and ambulatory would be nice to have. And if it comes through you, that's great. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity. Alameda Internal Medicine does a lot of this work. So, and there, as we know, there are there are a central fixture at Alameda Hospital. So, Dr. Joshi, I think that that's a cool opportunity to see to hear that 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 piece of the puzzle. Uh, Dr. Joshi, my question is: uh, There have been a lot of hot days this summer. <laughs> uh, any concerns at Alameda Hospital? I know we previously had discussion about. Uh, chillers and I, I know our COO always has a plan on how in it, uh, uh, how is the medical staff feeling about this risk and concern? Yeah, I, I, we're very concerned. Um, we had a previous meeting where early plans had been shared about what contingency would look like. And um, we have a upcoming meeting schedule. I want to say it's August 2nd. I could be wrong, but um, that's the next meeting scheduled and Mario Harding has taken the lead on that. So we're concerned because of course, HVAC, weather related events, it's not if it's only one. And when the weather goes, becomes too hot, then it takes things out like the operating room. It impacts the machines in our lab. It, um, you know, just at an individual level, it's very hot. And so if we have, you know, employees who are, who have, you know, issues with internal body temperature control, it really impacts them. So we do have an upcoming meeting and I'm very glad to be present and I'm looking forward to hearing um, uh, what we had previously was kind of high level plans. I'm really excited to hear more granular details of the plans because the other thing about all plans is when something happens, it happens. So it's difficult to communicate in the moment. So as granular as possible, early communication will be key. And I definitely plan to advocate for that. 
Mr. Fransky, is there any comments? This has been delegated to Mr. Harding. Um, well, yeah, but I can just give you a quick update. I think um, I know we've got a meeting coming up next week to talk about the rollout of the work we want to do there as we we're going to move forward with $2 million worth of work there. Oh, I just wow. approved, I just approved a new chiller today, which is not on that presentation. So we're, we're doing some things um, with the heat. That, I don't think the heat has been too extraordinary yet to the point we haven't had any issues okay. in the world thus far. So the plan is, is underway. Okay. Um, and Dr. Joshi, you'll be in attendance to make sure that uh, that plan can be communicated to all. Um, the plan to be there. Trustees, any other further questions for our docs? Yeah, yes, which, uh, which member of the Alameda Health District came for the mm -hmm. tour? Uh, Stuart Chen. Okay. Uh, I'm sure this topic came up on during his tour. <coughs> Were there any questions that he asked that needed to raise? I'm not sure if there were any questions, but um, from what I heard, he you could definitely feel the temperature difference even as you were walking through. And none of that was, of course, significant for patient care, um, but um, that was um, sort of a topic that he did talk about with Mark Harding. And sure, so I'm sure, you know, to hear Mark Fresky's update right now would be a really positive update um, for them to hear. ETA four minutes. Doctors, thank you very much for your presentation this evening. Thank you. With that, we'll close out item C and we'll go into item D, our quality reports. First, we'll hear from our, our VP of Quality, Ms. Anna Torres, and then Mr. Espinosa, our CAO uh, for Post-Acute. Um, good evening, Ms. Torres. Good evening. I'm going to share my screen. Ms. Torres, I think a comment, there, what, was there a mistake in, in entry and there was an email to the to the trustees on updated? Yes. I just want to make sure that the trustees see yes. the updated. Okay, got it. Um, and just so everyone knows, so we sent the big board report instead of the Quincy report in the cascade. So you got those in your email. Yeah. They weren't included in the packet. Um, but we did ask Annette when she presents the TNM to pull up the correct report so everyone has the benefit of seeing it. So um, really pleased to share this first slide. This is the harm rate by month. And you can see um, a steady decline since November. Um, for June, we are at 1.2%, and for the last four months, there have been uh, no harm events greater than in need. So um, we're really pleased to see that. Um, which brings Actually, Ms. Torres, you did that last time. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't celebrate this one as much as you should. I mean, isn't 1.2%? I, I, I was talking with Trustee Banner the last time. I'm not sure we've ever seen that rate. Is that right, Trustee Bennett? Yeah. So Ms. Torres, that's, please, that's you know, give yourself some credit. <laughs> I think everyone's done a great job. I mean, you see the TNN, um, you will see, um, Annette will share for a few minutes. We don't have a whole lot of time today, but you'll see that everything's moving in the right direction. Um, I really do think that the MORs that have been set up is really what's making the changes. Accountability and people are being held to their action plan. So I really think that's what's making the change. Um, we had San Leandro's um, MOR this today and, and Mark 
uh, did make it a point to congratulate them. Did, he did what I'm not doing. <laughs> he congratulated them for their excellent performance. They really are performing well. But I think in general, as you see the TNM, you'll start to see that towards the end of the year, um, we're improving. So we're starting to see, we're starting to see change. Yes, sir. Make of a course. quick comment on Sammy Andros. So the more this morning was exciting because the two North metric scorecard at San Leandro depicted all green, all green, with the exception of two satisfaction scores, uh, which is incredible. I've never seen a green scorecard like that. There was only one fall. The harm rates were almost negligible. So it was it was quite a if we start the new year in July off with momentum like this, um, which I'm hopeful of, it, it could be a real good year for our patients in terms of the safety we provide. So kudos to the San Leandro doctors and nurses and the whole team the whole there team. because it's jelly. Congratulations. Yes. And we'll have more good news when Darshan shares the culture of safety. Yes, ma'am. Um, so our annual harm rate is at 2.76, as you know, our goal is three, so it's a little bit better than the goal. Patient donations events are the one area that we continue uh, to struggle with. Um, and yesterday we started uh, really doing a deep dive into the data. We're going to try to identify any trends um, and any actions that we can take around that. So we'll have a report at the September meeting. Uh, but this is one area we're really looking at. And these are the types of the top three are yeah. quality of care. Ms. Torres, do you mind going back one slide, Trustee Estina's question? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to try to juxtapose the difference between harm and these patient relations. And I know you were just getting to the categories. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if we consider this harm, because this is how patients are experiencing their care. You know, they may not have an injury per se, they may not have a fall, but if if these numbers are creeping up, what is it like to be a patient in our care? And that, that's part of what we need to to look into a little more. So we did look at, uh, at the data a little bit. So for the quality of care, we do know the areas where um, what's leading to this and it's medication. Um, patients not understanding this disagreements with the care plan. Um, so for quality of care. So we'll, the work that we need to do though is further dive down into that data and see if it's specific to any one area or any one issue. When we look at the access, um, it's wait times, waiting for appointments, um, waiting for procedures or long waits when they get to their appointments. So those are mostly ambulatory. Um, and for staff professionalism, this customer service. So to your point, for uh, lack of professionalism when, when addressing the patient. So yes, they are a form of harm, but we'll do some more. Um, we'll dig down into that data a little more. And as I mentioned, Darshan's going to talk about this a little more, but I just wanted to present the timeline. We are now at step four. We're developing all the action plans and the monitoring, and that's due by July 31st. So we have a few more days um, for that deadline. But more to come on that. Um, as far as regulatory affairs, so we had three self-reported events uh, to CDPH and one complaint. Um, 
I think the big news here is um, survey activity. So especially um, with the Joint Commission lab survey at San Diego, and we alluded to this uh, last month, um, but again, wanted to congratulate them for their outstanding performance. You know, lab is one of those heavily regulated areas. And um, from that survey, we only came away with three findings. Out of those three findings, it was one was uh, something that the lab had identified previous to the survey and had fixed. So they had the action plan in place already. Um, so it really was only two findings that they found, and both of those findings were outside of the lab. This was a three-day survey, so they toured not only the lab, but throughout the hospital. So again, excellent performance with that survey. And now I am going to turn it over to um, Annette so that she can give a brief overview of the True North metrics. And she's going to do the equity drill down for this month, which is on hospital-acquired infections. Good evening, Ms. Johnson. Good evening. So um, for the True North metrics, I just wanted, I think um, as Anna already alluded, we have some, um, we're not quite at goal when we look at our fiscal year to date, but we've had a lot of improvement in the latter half of the fiscal year. We're seeing that primarily in harm. You can see the trend line sort of spiked early in the fiscal year and has been coming down through, through the more recent months. And so we're seeing improvements in falls um, and we have some further improvements, you know, with, with a focus on like our telesitters and chair and bed alarm availability, as well as this growing focus on mobility with the idea of keeping our patients strong to begin with, so they're less likely to fall. But we are also going to be shortly getting um, NDNQI, which is a nursing national database that will allow us to better benchmark our falls um, against national benchmarks and refine our measurements so that when we're measuring falls, we're measuring falls um, in a way that we can look at what, what is the appropriate fall rate for ICU versus post-acute versus rehab. So we can really, even uh, psychiatric, so we can really get a sense of how we're performing. So that'll further help us push that forward for, towards improvement. You know, the other area of real opportunity in our uh, harms data is our, our hospital-acquired infections. And the good news here is we do have performance improvement team focus on the, on the areas that we are seeing increased uh, hospital acquired infection, so SSI, Cotty, and Clapsy. And with the coming uh, new fiscal year, we're going to be doubling down on investing resources in those performance improvement teams and really helping to drive um, the harm reduction in those areas. The other great story here is our hand hygiene. You know, we didn't hit target for the year, but we have been on a steady and stable increase throughout the fiscal year. And in the latest later months of the fiscal year, we did hit target in May and June. So not only did we grow compliance, but we grew the number of audits. We have far more number of audits being completed. So we know that this is a robust improvement. The, um, another great spot I wanted to highlight real quickly is our specialty care backlog. You know, we were sort of seeing um, it sort of being stable throughout the fiscal year where for every referral we scheduled, we got a new referral in its place. The, the referral team over there initiated a cleanup where they really looked at, are we do we have duplicate referrals or do we have uh, patients that aren't responding to their referrals? So really working on making sure they're managing that queue so we get a real sense of the volume. And as you can see, that's brought down our um, referral rate and it's been, and they've been able to maintain that for about two or three months now. So it's a really promising start and will really help us scope our work for the coming fiscal year. Um, 
another area which has been sort of very high throughout the fiscal year, which is our ED waiting times, it was very high and hasn't been at goal. But in the latter part of the fiscal year, to tail in this last quarter, we've been starting to see improvements where the wait times are coming down close to goal. And this is being largely led by improvements at Alameda and San Leandro. So um, again, there's lots of work still to be done, but it's a promising start. And you're starting to see that um, the energy build and work towards that. Lastly, I wanted to take a look at our patient experience. It's a little hard to see here because nursing communication um, sort of experienced a decline about midway through the fiscal year, but has been rallying and coming back up. So we're starting to see this improve with nursing communication through the work that of uh, hourly rounding, leader rounding. Um, and then also the really good story here is this is our likelihood to recommend composite. So this is looking at all of our surveying we do. So we do surveying for the ED, uh, rehab, ambulatory surgery, our ambulatory clinics, our dental clinics, infusion uh, infusion uh, areas as well. And this is their combined uh, composite recommendation. And you can see that that has been growing throughout the fiscal year. So that is on an upward trajectory. Um, and so it sort of shows that we're working on patient experience, not only on the inpatient setting, but in all of our care settings. So it's a really promising, it's, you know, Maybe we didn't hit target this year, but I think we're definitely be positioning ourselves to do really well next fiscal year. Any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Huge props to San Leandro team for yeah. um, amazing work. Did you, Anna, did you want me to go into the other presentation or? Yes, the equity program. Yeah. Thank you. I'm sorry. Oh my goodness. I had it ready to go, but I don't know what just happened. Sorry. All good. One second, sir. You can see it. Okay, I just wanted to get full screen show. Oh, sorry about that. Okay, Thank you. So, you're welcome. Let's take a look at. Um, I had the wrong presentation. Oh my god, I'm doing a terrible job here. Trauma team to the ER, level two, Promising to the ER, level two, eight, five, six. I'm going to stop right now. Okay. okay. Apologize. Okay. All good. All right, we have the right presentation, my bad. Yep. <laughs> All right, so um, All right. So hospital-acquired infections are uh, healthcare-associated infections or infections people get while they're in the hospital receiving healthcare for another condition. 
these are very rare events that have happened, but the reason that um, we focus on them as well as the industry and CMS is that they have a significant, they have a significant, they, they are a significant cause of illness and death. They have, um, they have pretty serious consequences when they occur, um, both emotionally, financially, um, and medically. They lead to increased lengths of stay or readmissions. They increase costs for both um, hospitals and facilities as well as the patients. And they are preventable through the adherence, the adherence of best practice bundles. So here at AHS, in the acute care setting, we look at five hospital-acquired infections. There are central line-associated bloodstream infection, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, MRSA, which is um, multiple drug-resistant staph aureus, bloodstream infections, uh, C. difficile infections, and then surgical site infections. Um, this work, this um, abstract, when we extract AGIs, they are sort of uh, facilitated by our national uh, healthcare for safety NHSN network, which is led by the CDC. So there's a very elaborate and scientific rigor for uh, identifying these infections and whether they can be attributed to hospital acquired versus community acquired. And then they are they are infection control team um, abstracts these and submits this data under that. So there's a, there's a real uh, rigor to identifying these infections and confirming that they are in fact true infections. So when we take a look here at our performance at AHS over the, the last fiscal year, I have um, stratified our results by um, race. What I did is I took a look at how many inpatient encounters we had versus our total HAIs for the race. As you can see, that we, we don't have a great deal of hospital acquired infections. We're looking at 121 um, across the system. And you can see that for any given patient population um, under our race categories, that we are under um, 5% with our um, rate of hospital acquired infections. I did also take a look at um, what percentage of our population each of our race groups look and then um, and then also if we were to say uh, that 33.88% for African-American there at the end represents um, 41 divided by 121. So what percentage of our total HAIs um, each of the groups had. So you can see that um, uh, our African, our black and African descent in white populations have the highest um, number of infections um, uh, followed by the highest rates. You know, Hispanic is a, a close second. I did do some statistical testing on this and that there is no correlation between uh, hospital acquired infection and race. So there's, it doesn't, there's no increase in risk for acquiring a hospital acquired infection based on your race. Even though we do see some distribution in this number, it's because these are such low volume events that while we see this variation here, it is, it's because the numbers are so small, it isn't really a statistical variance. <clears throat> um, when we take a look, I just wanted to show you our certifications by, you know, it, it gets even smaller, so it's even harder here to, to um, do concrete evidence of whether there's a difference based on race, but you can see that Caudi C. difficile CLAPSI and SSI tend to be our higher um, HAIs. C. difficile, this is sort of somewhat expected and consistent with national. Uh, CAUTI, CLAPSI, and SSI, as I mentioned in our two North metrics, are sort of the area where we're slightly higher than we should would expect to be, 
with given our patient mix. So these are where our performance improvement efforts have been focused this last year and will be continue to be focused in fiscal year uh, 2024. Um, so um, you can see that uh, HAIs are, are rare, um, less than 4% of our inpatient admissions. There isn't a statistical difference in our rates um, based off a rate. There's no correlation between uh, hospital acquired infections and race. Um, we do see slightly higher proportions in our, Afri our black African descent and our white populations. This, for the black and African descent, this is consistent with natural literacy where there's an, uh, often an opportunity to better serve this population. Um, what is surprising is this white population that's very unique to AHS. So I need to, um, moving forward, I think we need to take a look at our workflow and our adherence to best practice bundles to make sure that there's no um, subconscious bias that's preventing us from following those bundle practices consistently across our different patient populations. And I think we need to get in there and slice and dice our white population to better understand why we're seeing higher frequencies of hospital associated harms. A couple of theories are um, perhaps more of our white patients are uh, trauma. And we know that trauma is um, an increased risk trauma cases and our trauma is an increased risk factor for hospital acquired infections. But like we said, we have some more slicing and dicing to do um, in the coming fiscal year. Are there any questions? Ms. Johnson, what's the, is there, what's the national benchmark for percent of inpatient admissions to get a hospital acquired infection? It's not measured that way, but I can tell you that. Um, I guess our, my question is, where, where do we sit relative to other hospitals and that we're less than 4%? Are we a high performer, mid? So I just need to contextualize. So I can tell you from looking, there's a there's the hospital acquired conditions penalty program that comes out every fiscal every year from CMS, where they give a penalty to the worst performing quartile when it comes to harm, of which the HAIs makes a huge portion of that calculation and um, Highland has hidden has gotten that penalty. Um, uh, five out of the last seven years. Ah, so we okay. have a real opportunity when it comes to hospital acquired infections. Okay. So we're a bottom quarter, we've historically had bottom quarter performance. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Trustees, any other questions for her? Oh, very interesting. Yeah. I would, I, would really like to see your deep dive into patient mix and why why you think those are hospital acquired infections are trauma. I always think it's about acuity, but maybe it is about trauma. Yeah, uh, yeah super great question. Okay. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Torres, any other things from your from your part of the presentation? No, that's it for Okay, us. wonderful. Uh, we have uh, Mr. Espinoza to give us the same quality report. Good evening, Mr. Espinoza. Good evening. Uh, thank you all for having me tonight. Um, I will try to do a brief overview. I will start by saying um, our Fairmont facility started their annual survey uh, Monday. And so we have four surveyors who have been living in our building since Monday. They're planning on leaving on Friday. Um, so our teams have been very, very busy. Uh, it is Wednesday, day three and four and five tend to be our busier days, um, but happy to share the, the teams have um, 
really risen to the occasion and have been doing a remarkable job. So uh, we're in the middle of it, so fingers crossed, um, but uh, I have high confidence that they're gonna do well. Thank you, sir. Uh, so uh, sharing again, uh, in May, I shared the 35 different metrics that are affiliated with the quality measures for CMS. Um, and so again, the three Alameda Hospital distinct park sniffs, the, the subacute South Shore Park Bridge, um, all continue to meet or exceed the 35 metrics, um, which uh, places them at much above average as a CMS star rating of five. Um, I will, and I've said this in the past, but just it, it is very difficult for three buildings to do so well, right? If one building falters, then they all falter, right? One building affects all of them. So for three building to sustain this, um, and I shared this the other day in a meeting, this is, we're going on our ninth year of five-star rating uh, for the Alameda sites. It's pretty remarkable for, for three buildings to do. Um, for our Fairmont building, also uh, at or above their 35 metrics that are being monitored, so they also are rated at a five-star quality measure. We're excited um, for survey because once survey is done, um, and again, we, we, you know, we have a high confidence they're going to do well, um, other metrics will change, their health inspection metrics will change and things. Um, so. Uh, looking forward to some really good outcomes from the survey. Um, just some data um, for June and July, there have been 14 CDPH visits. Um, 10 of them have been self-reports, four have been complaint visits. I wanted to share this because in contrast to the acute settings, the SNFs are incredibly regulated. We have, uh, and Mark and Felicia and Roe, um, get my emails where we, we probably have surveyors in our buildings weekly. Um, and it's because we do a lot of self-reporting. Uh, and so over the course of the two months, we had 14 visits, 12 of them resulted in no findings, which is an 86% no findings rate, which is an incredible outcome. Um, we had one uh, complaint result in a minor finding uh, at Park Bridge. We have one that is pending a supervisor review. And so we've had nine um, visits from Park Ridge, one from the acute rehab, two from South Shore and two from Fairmont. So a lot of self-reporting and a lot of visits. And so um, it's not unusual for us to be interacting with CMS and CDPH um, on any, any given day on any week. Um, but I will share that the outcomes, um, the, it's, you know, not normal for buildings to have a high level of no findings like this. And it lends to a lot of the consistencies in processes, standardization, um, all the buildings operate with similar um, practices and policies. And so that really lends to um, sustained and consistent outcomes. I did want to touch on one of the metrics that we're looking at. And so I wanted to, since we're talking about falls across the system, uh, in May, across our five post-acute sites, we had 22 falls, which is 2.4%. Um, and the, the percentages are changing for post-acute at the moment with CDPH and CMS, but it's roughly around 
three to 5%, which is the average for falls. And so we tend to do better um, than um, a lot of other buildings. In June, we were able to reduce it with a lot of the um, interventions and quality improvement um, processes that we've done to 15, which brought it to 1.7%. Um, and for July, um, unfortunately, it's not 11 anymore. We're at 14 today, um, but still under the 15. So hoping to sustain that. So we're looking to be somewhere in the 1.6-ish, 7-ish uh, for July as well. So really, um, working on bringing this down, a lot of focus. Um, none of the falls have resulted in injuries. And the SNFs, as I was sharing earlier, about standardization and processes and programs. We have a Falling Star program. Um, our falls, we always review with our pharmacist and in medications that could contribute to um, residents being unstable. Um, we look at rehab and safety awareness. And in buildings where there's an increased amount of rehab, um, particularly all of our SNFs have, you know, physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, residents are becoming stronger, right? And so they may not have been able to ambulate when they came to our building, but now we're getting them to ambulate. And so they sometimes have um, not the best safety awareness and that they were walking with supervision. So they try to do it on their own. Um, and sometimes that results in some falls. I will say that the post-acute facilities about five years ago moved away from bed alarms, pressure pads, um, because those are considered restraints in the post-acute environment. So when a patient has an alarm attached to them and they stand up and it starts beeping, CMS decided, and, and we all agree that it's considered a restraint because it's so alarming and jarring to a patient that they're hearing this loud noise and it, it, it restrains them from moving. So our falls um, are being managed with really close supervision, care plans, low beds, um, you know, toileting, um, bowel and bladder programs. So a lot of um, proactive approaches, um, but we don't have any tab alarms, pressure pads, bed alarms in our sites um, because for us they're considered Restraints. Can I ask a couple questions? Go for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I appreciate the proactive approach, and I'm curious if you're using uh, the the e-sitter program that we rolled out in inpatient. Are you doing any of that in post-acute? Yeah, uh, that. That started at Highland, I believe. It's not been in any of the post-acute sites. Um, and, and there are some items that need to, we need to be cautious about, like in the SNFs, cameras are really, um, we have to be cautious for privacy, for dignity reasons, it's their home. Um, and so uh, cameras and facilities are usually not um, something that they use. So we do have sitters, um, but we've had a significant reduction in sitters and um, we're under, we ended the year um, under budget by more than $2 million in sitters. Um, and so the teams have a very strong process in assessing sitters on a daily basis, reduction of sitter usage. And, and we use sitters, um, I think a little bit different in the SNFs in the sense that we might use them for sundowning between 
three and seven. We we don't we won't necessarily use them for a twenty four seven period. We might just utilize them during a period when we notice that a resident tends to to have more of a behavior or more of an intervention for a very specified amount of time. Um, you know, and you know, today Park Bridge has two sitters out of 112 residents. So they've done a remarkable job in, redu in reducing sitters. That's, uh, that's amazing statistics all the way around. Yeah. You would imagine so that the, the loss of sitters, yeah, yeah. using less sitters might have different outcomes. That's really remarkable. Great use of proactive pharmacological studies and yeah, keeping on top of all that. Uh, final question is, on these falls, how many of them are same patients or That's are they repeat patients? That's a great question. I'll say in May that uh, our Fairmont site had one resident who fell four times. Um, and each fall, there's an IDT assessment in the fall, um, post-fall review, um, which is the entire IDT, right? We have EVS to make sure there weren't any items that potentially caused the fall, like wet floors, no wet floor signs. Were there, um, was the overbed table too far? And so they were trying to reach for personal belongings and that's why they fell. Um, were they not on a bowel and bladder program, which um, has them um, on a frequent um, assistance to the restroom. And then we were able to retrain their bladders to go to the bathroom at certain times and then they become more independent. Um, I will say in June and July, um, there have been less, um, of the same resident falling multiple times, but each time we attack it with a different intervention and a different care plan because we, our, our thought process is, well, what we had in place didn't work, so what are we going to change? Again, this time, um, starting with the least restrictive, you know, lower, you know, bed low to the ground, um, you know, bowel and bladder programs, things of that nature. So great question. Thank you. Great, uh, and that's it. If there are any other questions, I'd be happy to answer. Um, and certainly we'll go back to you with the outcome of our survey. Excellent, thank you, Mr. Espinoza. Well, with that, we'll close off item D. Item E is uh, our uh, quality report. Uh, this is a little bit of a, a version of a redux. We did this at the full board, the culture of safety results, uh, I'll sort of own this one. We put this on the calendar a couple of weeks ago, and then this came to the full board. Um, uh, Ms. Graywall, of course, our assistant director for patient safety is going to present. Uh, Ms. Graywall, since we've heard a version of this, is there, can you hit the high points for us for this evening in about you know, five to 10 minutes? And that way we have a chance of getting the crew out early. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you Sounds very much. Thank you. Um, let me that pull is super it. high points because, again, our second go at it. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Um, Again, I um, can everybody hear me clearly? Yes, we're good. Wonderful. Okay, so I just want to reiterate sort of our our um, our culture, our cultural transformation journey. So um, you know, uh, sometimes people every year they say, "Oh, another culture of safety survey. Why another survey, Darshan? We haven't fixed what we've already started." But again, culture culture is how we do things here. It's really the shared perceptions, beliefs, values, attitudes that create the outcomes. So until we actually get to a point where we feel that we've reached 
a good sustainable culture, it's really important that we invest in it every single year and, and, do, and do the hard work. Um, we wanna encourage a reporting culture, of course, with our safety alerts. And then we also wanna tie in the just culture because it's really important that everyone at AHS is accountable for their choices and behaviors. So there's a lot of transformation going on, but they, they go hand in hand uh, on trying to achieve our ultimate goal of having a, a transparent learning, um, a collegial culture that will help address some of these areas. Um, again, uh, I think Anna has already shared, we're in the developing the action plan phase. Um, so most of our debriefings have been done. Uh, we have about 161 departments that need to create an action plan and start implementing uh, as of August. So that's the phase that we're in. Um, I do want to just pause here for a moment, even though during the last board report, uh, we did mention that we were the only um, beta clients that had uh, a, an improvement in every single one of the 15 domains. But I want to point out a few things that are really important about um, these domains. All of the domains have a factor that promotes a culture of safety. Some domains have more impact than others. And our primary domains, which is teamwork and safety climate, um, although we're doing better, we're still, we still have a long, long way to go because this isn't percent positive. So when you look across our organization, teamwork, um, is only 28% positive. And safety climate, which is really the empowerment of an individual to speak up without fear of retaliation, rejection, or opinion, is only at 37%. So what I'm trying to, my point is, even though we've done well, we are just in the infancy phase of our cultural transformation. So that's why I, I really want to... Um, you know, drive my message to the leadership and to the, the board members that we have a long way to go. And I would really um, hope that, that these efforts will be supported for many years to come. When we look at secondary drivers of it, it's all about the relationship of the individual to their leader. How much does my leader support me? How accessible are they? How much do they communicate to me so I know what's happening? And how much do they engage me in the decision-making that impacts the areas that I work in? We're in the 50th percentile again. So there is opportunity for us. I'm glad we're doing better, but I don't want to, I don't want to get too excited because again, I feel that we have a long way to go. And then again, the, the, the final, the third drivers are around burnout. And again, we do have a long way to go, but I'm happy we're doing better. And there is a, um, our vendor does use this Duke Health. And um, I did uh, inquire if our data is statistically significant. And they said it's indeed statistically significant. Um, because we have a response rate of over 60% and anything that's two points or higher does show a statistical improvement 
in these. So again, slow but steady, which which is maybe what we need to what we need to hope for so that it's more of a sustainable model. Um, I'm not going to go through this. I think you all know about the, the survey. Uh, I'm going to just be mindful and respectful of Dr. Uh, Bouquet's request of me. Um, I do, I, I do want to share sort of the three years of performance so that we can look at, are we truly getting better? Just not a one-year snapshot. So this is the primary drivers, the teamwork and safety climate. So we have seen a 5% improvement over the last three years. So that's, that's great. Um, safety climate, like I said, is the empowerment of our staff to speak up. So again, we've seen a 6% increase. So again, we've got to really celebrate those positive wins. When we look at the correlation, because teamwork and safety climate have a huge correlation. And I always, when I do debriefings, I sort of share this synopsis with, with, with the teams. Any group of people that constitutes a team, whether you, you call it a family, a group of friends, or people that have to work together. When you have a group of people that are cooperating, communicating, enjoy being with one another, you will automatically drive a safety climate. So people will automatically feel empowered to speak up because they know that they'll be supported by their team members. People have each other's back. When you look at this scatter plot, our organization as a whole, there's a lot of areas. These are all different work settings. There's 161 work settings. There's still a lot of settings that are in the red zone. So we do have opportunity. Now, some of the, the, the strongest areas that we saw with this correlation, congratulations to the San Leandro internal medicine providers. There's a group in the ambulatory care setting, the infusion center, population health, our, our Highland internal medicine, which is great, and then palliative care. So these were the five work settings that are actually reflected up here. And um, this is a very, very important correlation that I don't wanna lose sight because our numbers need to be way higher than they are, but they're going in the right direction. The next one is that relationship between the employee and their leader. Again, I just wanted to share over the last three years, we have seen about a 5% and five and a 6% improvement. But again, the more the leaders invest in the frontline staff, especially during the, this survey time, the more we will see a change in, this, in this, these results. The biggest issue is sometimes employees say when you do the debriefing, my voice is not heard. And so we encourage them, this survey process, give us your results. We will listen to what you have to say and your leader will work with you to put an action plan. But again, it's an investment from the, from the managers to really look at what the frontline staff are saying and, and working with them to make those uh, improvement efforts. Um, again, this is the correlation of those two, um, a little bit better than the teamwork and um, uh, the safety climate, but these, this is how the correlation works. The, the positions that have the highest strength in our organization are nurse practitioners, 
And then most of the quality teams, quality, safety, risk, regulatory, SIM, and then the PI, which is um, under the uh, 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 one of our team, and then the administrators, VPs, directors, and managers. Those are the positions that actually ranked this um, area the highest. Um, and then, of course, we have the, the lower farming ones. But again, a little bit better, but we have opportunity. And then the last one, because it, it was the top three domains that impact our culture is burnout and, and sort of like the work-life balance. Again, this, um, the lower the better. So it's gone down by 5% over the last three years. And then I had data for four years on the work-life balance. And again, that's gone up 8% in the positive direction. So that, again, these are all... Um, signs that we are working towards the right direction. But again, we can't let our foot off the gas pedal to, to um, be sort of a graphic about it because there is a lot of value in the work uh, that, that and the results that we're getting. Um, I can't stress enough uh, to all of the leaders that I have an opportunity to either debrief with or in a forum of this, of this magnitude that having a great response rate or um, doing the debriefings, none of that is as relevant as actually creating an action plan because we've given the opportunity for our staff to be heard by uh, implementing this survey every year, by conducting 100% debriefings, but really the rubber hits the road when staff really see that my leader listened and we're gonna do something about the things that year after year are being neglected. So that's really where the important work actually um, happens. And so that's why developing the action plan is really an important fundamental part of moving our culture forward. Um, in patient safety, we've invested some of our patient safety funds in recognizing departments that really do take these results seriously and put robust action plans in place. So we, I personally read 100% of the action plans to see if they correlate with the actual results and they're actually driving the performance forward. And, and for the past two years, we have recognized um, areas. This was last year's winners. I started with 10 the first year. There were so many great um, uh, submissions last year that we bumped it up to 16 because I really had to cut and slice. But I think it's really important for those areas to feel proud of the work that they're doing to improve their culture because it's a lot of commitment and engagement from the frontline staff, the managers, everyone. Everyone gets really involved. And I'm going to be doing an analysis this year to see how each of these areas have changed their score over the last year to this year. This was the first year we did it, but it brings a lot of in, um, local pride to, to groups when they know that their, their concerns are being heard and they're part of the solution. Part of that improvement readiness, um, several of the questions under that domain is, does my leader listen to the feedback that I give them and do they engage me in the work that impacts my work?
So it's really, really important when people do tell us this is working or this is not working, that we actually take the time and invest in the, in the efforts to, um, to try to work towards correcting some of that, those areas. Um, so I think that's my last slide. So I can stop sharing um, and take any questions. Please, thank you for your presentation, Ms. Bill. Thank you, Darshan. This is the pulse check of your, yeah. even though we heard it the second time, it's really helpful for us to kind of reinforce these messages. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I appreciate the clarity that it's not just the process, it's the plan. Yeah. yeah. And making that plan and going through it. I mean, we saw the results of real plans and accountability tonight in our in our patient safety schools. So that, you know, the, the patient safety is the work we do, the culture of safety is who's doing the work. So mm -hmm. it's wonderful to see all of this. Yeah. And, positives, and positives are nice. Positive and we have way and we have ways to go. We yeah, want more than the participation trophy. Thank you. That 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 is my that is my humble request of every year. Really take it, like Dr. Bouquet always says, feedback is a gift. And it's really, we owe it to our frontline staff um, to, to invest in them. That's our investment in, in, in removing the barriers that prevent them to be top notch. <laughs> so, and, and like you said, it's not just it holds steady, it actually erodes and goes in the opposite yes. direction when yeah, people actually give their feedback in and, and then that's not a plan. Agreed. Yeah. So wow. if you haven't submitted your plan yet, please do so or reach out to me and I'll, I'll help you. Thank you, Ms. Grable. That ends item E. Uh, team, item F is, a, we discussed it in our retreat, which was actually planning calendar and issue tracking. I take responsibility. This has sort of been a pass through item for us. Yes. And we agreed at the retreat, maybe we'd just take a minute or two to think about things for, to actually use this agenda item for things that we, we might want to talk about. So let's just spend like maybe a minute of, brainstorming and said this past three. One thing that I have heard in multiple venues is uh, with which relates to our level one trauma program and our and, and our trauma service. I think that would be something important to come back. We're going, uh, my understanding is we're going through a recertification in the spring of next year. And, uh, and I've heard from our trauma chief on some of these issues. So I think this would be important for us to hear about. Trustee Banerjee, esteem, sign, anything else that tickles your fancy that you'd like to hear about in this venue? I think some of the federal and state like Joint Commission or uh, CMS, like some of the things that are compliance-wise mandatory for us to do, but also like the our own um, CalAIM, the bold goals, like we have maternal care and other things that are there. So some things that are like, Elevated for the state, okay. elevated for that would be nice to kind of hear where we are with those things that okay. we should be having in place. Trustees, anything off the top of your head? If nothing, that's okay too. Okay. May I ask for a clarification? Did I was um, here earlier that we wanted to hear about our medication error reduction plan, perhaps a presentation from our pharmacy? Yeah, and then we figure it out. Sure. Or it's always great to hear. We, 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 it's always great to hear. We've seen the report twice now. So, uh, Dr. Tornabene, how about you and I talk uh, as we kind of forecast whatever we have to put on? And then 
with the culture of safety as the plans are getting implemented, could we like have some like how it's going? Do people implement? Cult, so we'll call that culture of safety update. Uh, yeah. Madam Chair, that maybe that's for the big board too. Uh, for the board. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, I, mean, I don't know that. I mean, we could do it here, yes. but I think the full board would probably like that. Yes. Thing. Okay. Um, all right. Good job brainstorming. With that, it's item F is closed. We've now closed our uh, open session. Uh, uh, Councillor. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. Uh, the quality committee of the board will now go into closed session and consider the items as stated on the agenda. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. The Quality Committee of the Board met in closed session to approve the medical staff report. There were no other reportable actions taken. Thank you, Council. With that, we'll close the July 26, 2023 QPSC. And as a reminder, uh, the QPSC is the only of the board committees which is not, not dark in August. So we will be having our meeting in August. <laughs>